0: I'm thinking about this fragrance that's in the air that's so sweet and the reasons that it's there. Something creates a fragrance, whether it's good or bad. You usually don't think of something bad as fragrant, but that depends on how you use that word. There's always something present if there's a fragrance. The fragrance is evidence that something's there, something's present, something is creating that fragrance, something's causing that fragrance, and if it's a fragrance that remains somewhere, then something is there that has not left. It's not just that it was there for a little while. You can bake some cookies, and you might smell those in your house for hours after you eat all of them, or whoever sneaks and eats all of them. You may smell them for hours afterwards, but to keep smelling that day after day after day, there's got to be something present there to create that odor, that fragrance in the air. So thank God that there has always been a fragrance in this assembly that is a telltale sign of the presence of the Lord that we've been talking about just the last few weeks. And that fragrance has been added by not only God's Spirit, but by the spirits of the people that are part of this assembly that have caused God to want to be here. The most beautiful fragrance that is created in the air of a church is a combination of the fragrance, spiritually speaking, of God's presence, because there's a fragrance to that. I don't mean that you're going to smell it with your nose. You're going to take in a deep breath and smell something that smells like some fragrance that you really enjoy, whether it's a food or a flower, whatever the case might be, some scent that appeals to you. The scent of the presence of the Lord is a little deeper than some you can smell with your nostrils or even experience with just your natural five senses. You've got to experience it with your spiritual senses. You've got to be tender enough in your spiritual senses. If you don't want to smell something because maybe you're going into an environment where there's some strong odor of some kind, you might put nose plugs in or a face mask or something else on to keep you from smelling it. Some people have done that with the Lord. They've cauterized their spiritual nerve endings to the degree that they don't really feel the Lord. And the sad comment of that is you can go right into a place where God is just as present as He could possibly be, and they won't even feel Him there because they've cauterized their spiritual nerve endings. They've seared their spiritual nerve endings. God and heaven forbid. It may be difficult sometimes to be sensitive where you can get hurt or you can get affected by things that could hurt your feelings, your emotions, you know. But you're going to have to be sensitive if you're going to feel the Lord. You're going to have to allow yourself to let your guard down long enough to, or maybe permanently in the sense of your guard down with the Lord, to allow Him to touch you, allow His presence to be felt. But I started saying that one of the things that creates a fragrance in the air is God's presence, but God's presence is usually not there if there's not something there that appeals to God. That's why we sometimes see these statements made in the Scripture about the fragrance or the scent of a sacrifice going up. It's a sweet odor to God. There are sacrifices that went up to God. You see, at times when it was the exact same animal being sacrificed, it might have been the exact same people doing the sacrifice, but God said it was a stink in my nostrils. He didn't mean that as a compliment. He meant it was a bad odor to Him to smell their sacrifices. Because the pleasure that those sacrifices brought God, if you want to call it pleasure, the feeling that it created in God was not based on what animal was sacrificed or if you were just carrying out the ritual or even if you did the sacrifice perfectly according to the way it was supposed to be done and the different descriptions of how sacrifices were to be offered in the book of Leviticus and elsewhere, you might be perfectly and precisely offering that sacrifice according to the dictates of the Mosaic law It might be exactly the right sacrifice. That sacrifice might be without blemish or anything else, but you might not be offering it with the right motive. You might not be offering it with your heart in the right place. That's what God was talking about in the first chapter of Isaiah when He was talking about how He's going to take no pleasure in some of the things that they were doing that were, they thought, going through the rituals that would keep them in a relationship with God. But they were just going through the motions. We don't ever want to just go through the motions in our Christian life. We want everything we're doing to have meaning. And I mean meaning in a couple ways. You want it to be the right thing, because if you're doing the wrong thing, it's not going to have any spiritual meaning. But you want to have it to have meaning to you, that it's genuine, it's real. What you're doing is genuine. So one of the things that draws God's attention in a positive way is when we are offering up sacrifices that appeal to Him. We don't offer up physical sacrifices anymore under the New Covenant. That's not part of the New Covenant anymore, shedding of the blood of animals. We offer up spiritual sacrifices now that are holy and acceptable unto God. We offer up ourselves as a living sacrifice. Look at both of those statements, one made by Paul and one made by Peter. Paul said, we offer up ourselves as living sacrifices, holding it acceptable to God. Peter talked about how we're offering up spiritual sacrifices. We're offering up ourselves as a sacrifice now. And if you're really offering up yourself, and that isn't a physical offering, obviously, you're not taking your life physically. But if you're really offering yourself up to God, it'll be a sweet odor to Him. If people really want to be in relationship with God so deeply that they're broken over any missing pieces, they're broken over anything that is causing them to not be what they ought to be, they're broken and contrite, let me add a word, over anything that is limiting their relationship with God or keeping them from being in a deeper relationship with God. That appeals to God because God loves a broken and a contrite spirit, broken and a contrite heart. He won't despise those things. The reason he won't despise them is because somebody that has that kind of heart wants to be nearer to God. Our last Sunday night, that special service we had, a couple of our precious people ended that service with some testimonies about their desire to be closer to God. And you could just feel how the atmosphere, which is already charged with the presence of the Spirit in the subject we were on just shifted a little bit when you felt that sweetness come in. It was like somebody was offering up themselves a sacrifice and just saying, Lord, will you please help me not to fail you? That was really the appeal. We had one precious lady and one precious man. Isn't that something that both made that appeal at the end? Lord, I just want to be closer to you. Will you please pray that I won't fail An appeal even to the assembly. Will you please pray that I won't fail to do everything you ask of me? I want to be pleasing to you. I'm telling you, when your spirit is like that, that's a brokenness and a contrition that draws God's attention. He wants people to have that kind of spirit. So, the smell that comes up from this assembly and the spiritual realm, the scent, the fragrance that will be so sweet to God, that by the way, will also be sweet to you if you learn to recognize it, is a fragrance that's created by God's presence and the presence of a sacrifice being offered to God. And the presence of a sacrifice being offered to God is what draws God's presence, many times. God's attention is drawn to sacrifices that are being offered up to Him. So when we're offering up ourselves as living sacrifices, which is just to say, you're saying, Lord, here am I. I'm yours. That's what it means to sacrifice yourself. You're not, as I said, doing something physically. You're offering yourself up as a spiritual sacrifice, not a natural sacrifice. You're saying, Lord, my hopes, my dreams, my desires, my will, all of it I'm putting down on the altar and asking you to guide my steps. I'll do what you ask me to do. As another song goes, I'll say what you want me to say. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll go where you want me to go. We are willing to do that because of what he's done for us. That's part of what adds that sweet fragrance to the assembly. It is a fragrance that's created by the smell of a sacrifice, the smoke, spiritually speaking, of a sacrifice going up. And the attention of God that it draws that anytime God comes into the environment, it changes the environment, you know. I said some people don't recognize the environment's been changed. I've seen people come into a very heavily spiritually charged environment. I don't mean people are jumping up and down or doing anything physical. You don't have to move a muscle for the environment to be spiritually charged. You might, if you feel something, if your emotions are stoked by the presence of the Spirit, you might just feel like, I've got to run or I've got to leap or I've got to raise my hands or shout out or cry or whatever emotional response you might have to the presence of the Lord. But you don't have to have any of those responses for God's presence to be here. Sometimes all it is is something in your heart that nobody in the building would even know is occurring. Something is being affected within you by God's presence. And God doesn't need to hear you shout out or run or do anything else for Him to know that. You could if you felt to do that, but God doesn't need to see you do anything outwardly. He knows what's going on in your heart when your mind's turning toward Him, and His attention is drawn by that. Nobody needs to yell out to get God's attention. Prophets of Baal tried to yell out to get their God's attention. They did it half the day long and didn't get anywhere. Got made fun of by Elijah who told him maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's gone off somewhere to take care of some things. Maybe he's on a long journey. He gave him a list of a couple of things their God, Baal in that case, might have been off doing, some of which are more colorful than others. But he was mocking their God, But our God doesn't slumber and he doesn't sleep. You know, the only reason God wouldn't show up in his presence is if we are not connecting with him in the right way. You know that if you really open your heart to God and you appeal to him, he's going to show up. That doesn't mean he's going to answer everything you want. That isn't what I mean by showing up. Some people think that whatever they want, if they have a strong enough faith, they'll get it. But you know that's not realistic. It's not even common sense if you think about it. Your faith isn't going to override God's wisdom. You're not wise enough for your faith to choose the right things all the time. You might have all the faith in the world that but you're not wise enough to realize what you really need. God's not going to give you something you don't really need or that might be hurtful to you just because you have faith that you could have it. But thank God that he does hear our prayers and he does know sometimes the things that we don't even know. There's sometimes things we don't even know that God knows. It's one of the things that are said, Paul said this as well, that sometimes the Spirit intercedeth for us. This is a very strange way of putting this. And I know you know what it means, but it's very strange to word it like this. The Spirit intercedeth for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Well, the Spirit isn't groaning. That makes it sound like the Spirit's the one doing the groaning but the Spirit working in us intercedes for us by groanings that we are making that cannot be uttered. When it says they can't be uttered, it doesn't mean they're just going on inside. They could be. You can groan inside without anything coming out. I've had some groans inside nobody knew I was groaning about. I might not have groaned out loud. I might not have done anything physically, but inside I was groaning. Inside I was groaning. Well, that's one way you can groan within in a way that's not uttered audibly. But really what I think that's talking about, it can't be uttered in language that can be understandable. You might just groan out. You might speak in another language that you don't understand what you're saying. No one else understands what you're saying. But God knows what you're saying. That's one of the blessed things about the Spirit. It's a conduit. It's a communication tool between your heart and the heart of God. We don't always, as I've said, have the ability to communicate what's in our heart. We might not have the scale of intelligence to communicate it. I certainly don't. We might not have the vocabulary to communicate it. I love vocabulary. I love words. But I don't have enough words to express some of the things I'm feeling sometimes. Sometimes I honestly get frustrated because I don't have enough words to express to God what I'm feeling. Or maybe even sometimes express to you what I feel like God's talking to me about. I can't put it into words. It's so complex or deep or rich. But our spirit can make groans that cannot be uttered. In other words, they they aren't something that is understandable to someone else, and that might be the best thing in the world. If you're groaning out in your spirit about something that's very personal to you that you can't even put into words, you may not want your neighbor sitting beside you to hear that in point-by-point description of whatever it is you're struggling with, you know, especially if you're struggling with a bad spirit, which we all are. If you're struggling with something that's in you that you know is not right, I don't know how much you want the person sitting beside you or in front of you or behind you in the pew or wherever you're at to be hearing you going down point by point through the things that you're hoping God will change in your life. Maybe it'd be good for you if they did, but I'm not sure that all of us are capable of getting through the humiliation of that kind of experience. So God protects us sometimes. That's why the precious work of the Spirit is so important in all the different ways that it works. It's not just in the aspect of speaking in tongues, but in all the ways it works, sometimes without any kind of audible expression. Spirit works in a lot of layers, and those layers are important. They're critical to our keeping our line of communication open with God, which is not just, as I said, audible. It's something that goes down to the deep internal level. And that's part as I said here a few minutes ago what creates this fragrance in the air we have connected with a higher place we've reached into a higher realm we're touching something that is outside of our finite dimensions that we're living in right now that we're looking around and seeing what amounts to three dimensions that we can see visibly and four dimensions that we can mathematically ascertain that we're living in and I won't explain all that on a Sunday afternoon if I could even do it, but there are other dimensions where God's operating. There's things we don't see. There's things going on in the invisible realm. extra-dimensional. what's sometimes referred to as supernatural. Supernatural just means more than what we understand in our natural realm with its natural laws and its natural order. There's some things that just aren't going to happen in the natural realm because of the laws of the natural realm, like the law of gravity. The fact that Jesus walked on those waves is not something that can happen in the natural realm. You can try it, but I wouldn't advise it. I certainly wouldn't advise it if it's deep water and you're not good at swimming. Don't go testing the theory. Well, Jesus walked on the waves. I'm going to go out to Lake Erie, get out in a boat of waves, and jump out see if I can walk. Is that a life jacket or... Brother David knows better. Is that a life jacket or without any way to protect yourself? There's things that are outside the realm of our natural ability. But they're not outside the realm of God's ability. There is nothing outside the realm of God's ability that doesn't affect His moral character. You understand what I meant by that? There are things outside the realm of God's ability. I know the Scripture says with God all things are possible, but all things are possible that don't change who God is. It's not possible for Him to lie. I actually had somebody that I don't know what they were thinking. Well, I know why they were arguing this, because it was helping them with some doctrine they wanted to believe. But they got so tangled up in a certain doctrine they wanted to believe about the devil that they finally, when certain scriptures were brought up that didn't agree with their doctrine, especially when you look at the original language, they got so upset with me, they started telling me that God is the one responsible for lies in the Bible. I said, you better explain what you mean by God being responsible for lies, because there was a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets, you know. So I said, is that lying spirit a spirit that is morally evil, or is that a spirit that's morally good? Who's making that spirit lie? Did God allow it to lie or did God make it lie? You better explain that if you're going to understand the supernatural realm. And this person got so wound up, they got to the point where this is the problem with getting wound up. You get wound up, you may wind yourself up so tight that you have lost all sense and reason and rationality and way outside the realm of what the Bible says. And you won't be able to accept what the Bible says because you've gotten certain ideas so wound around your mind you can't see past them. They started to argue with me that God can lie, and He can make other people lie if He wants to. And I said, you do know that God does not lie, right? And they said, God can lie if He wants to. God can do anything. And then they quoted the Scripture. With God, brother, all things are possible. That's a perfect example of something you need to rightly divide, because all things are possible that would not change Him from being God which means almost anything is possible. But if it's something that would change him from being who he is, that's not possible because he's not going to change. He is who he is. If he's a God who does not lie, then it's not possible for him to lie. Not because he couldn't choose to, but because his moral nature would not allow him to. It's not that he's a prisoner of anything. It's that he has chosen for himself to be a certain type of entity. And because he's that kind of entity and he has sovereign ability to be what type of entity he has chosen to be, You're never going to see God lie. And you ought to be thrilled that you're never going to see God lie. That means anything God has said, you can bank on. You can put your trust in, saints. God is faithful. He's always faithful. So this poor individual went round and round and round about how God can lie. And no matter how many times I quoted Scriptures where it says, God that cannot lie, that didn't mean anything to Him. That's what people do sometimes with their doctrine. They cherry-pick a Scripture out. With God, all things are possible and they do not qualify that scripture with any other scriptures. That's why the Bible is not meant to be a cherry-picked document. It has to be a cohesive and comprehensive document, meaning you have to take the whole scripture. If you're going to pick out statements about something that looks like it's communicating a certain idea, and you don't take the rest of the scripture to qualify what that may or may not mean, you can come to all kinds of conclusions. It has led to all kinds of theological fallacies, Because people have taken statements that appear to be pretty clear until you realize the Bible would have to be contradicting them somewhere else if they were as clear as you think. Which means the Bible has to mean something different by that statement than they're thinking it means because otherwise it would be contradicting itself. Faith that we've been talking about a little bit lately is like that. It's one of those things that if you don't rightly understand it, you're going to pick out some scriptures about faith and how faith saves. And if you look at the scripture, it looks like it only includes just the element of belief. But once you start reading the whole Scripture, you realize that faith cannot exist just as belief. It has to exist as a response to your belief and something that changes you through that belief. So you have to take the entirety of the Scripture. We don't get to just pick out the parts that agree with what our presuppositions, preconceptions might be. No matter how clear they seem to be by themselves, they have to be qualified by what the whole of the testimony of the Scripture is. That argument isn't even one of those. If you believe God can lie, you've got some serious issues. I'd be a bit concerned, not just because the person was making this argument to defend their view of the devil. I'd be a bit concerned because I'm not sure why you'd want to serve a God that could lie. What could He tell you you could bank on? What could He tell you you could trust and have faith in if He were to say to you, you know what, here's what I'm promising you, and then He followed up by saying, but you know, I can lie after all. (laughs) What in the world? How in the world would you put any confidence in that kind of a statement? What if somebody stood up in a pulpit and said, you know what, I'm a pathological liar. Well, let me tell you about the goodness of God. You'd be thinking, my Lord, anything they tell me about the goodness of God, if they're a pathological liar, there ain't no telling. It's probably the exact opposite of the truth. You can't put your confidence in somebody that could lie to you or could deceive you in some way that would be iniquitous. God doesn't do those things. Thank the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for some of the things that we know about you that have caused us to recognize that fragrance a little bit better. I know when something is of God and when it's not in many areas because I know enough about God. You know, you can discover pretty quickly whether something is of God by knowing more about God. In fact, the more you know about God, the more you will be able to know whether other things are genuine. If someone is telling you the Spirit's moving and you're extremely familiar with the Spirit, you're going to know whether it's moving. Very likely, you'll be able to identify if that's really the Spirit. If somebody tells you something about God, and people are telling us a lot of things about God in this present day we're living in, they're telling us all kinds of things about what God is okay with in our present culture. There's a whole list of things that this present culture believes God is okay with, at least the parts of this present culture that still want to call themselves Christian or at the very least semi or pseudo Christian, that they would like to claim God is okay with certain things. He's changed his mind about his moral beliefs. Listen, God cannot lie. I want you to think how simple this is. The Bible is as clear as you can get. There's at least two or three very direct statements that say that. In both the Old and the New Testament, God cannot lie. Now, if God cannot lie and God says, I hate and fill in the blank of whatever He hates, does He hate it or not? You say, well, He's changed His mind about that. Well, there's things that can change God's mind, but they're not things that are in His character that are changed. There are things that are in you that change. If you are somebody who is at war with God and God is your enemy and he sees himself as your enemy and you make a change in your life to adapt your relationship with God, to turn to him, to submit to him, his attitude towards you is going to change, but it isn't that something in him changed. He's the same that he always was, something in you changed. And because something in you changed, now God's attitude towards you is different. Now he can do certain things in your life because you are changing. So we've got to go through some changes if we're going to be pleasing to God. But I started saying that, thank God we know some things about God and about His nature and about His character and about His disposition that allow us to be able to judge whether something's of God. If you know enough about how God feels about certain things, there's never going to be anybody's going to be able to stand up and say, you know what? You're just misunderstanding the Scripture. God really is okay with A, B, or C. That's some foul thing. If you have no doubt what God has said about that in the past, then it's a moral issue not a dispensational issue. Listen, those are different. We should never confuse moral things with dispensational things because morality is not dispensational. There are some things that are dispensational. Methods can be dispensational. It wasn't always that God filled people with the Holy Spirit like you see on the day of Pentecost. That was a unique thing that happened on the day of Pentecost and after that. Prior to the second chapter of Acts, other than however you think that Jesus was born of the Spirit, nobody had been born again of the Spirit. Nobody had been filled with it to the degree that they were reborn by the Spirit, born again. So that was a new thing. It was a new method. There are other things that God has used in different eras of time. There are some laws that God never communicated to man all through the history of His interaction with man, all the way up to the time of Mount Sinai, which would have been about 2,600 years after the time of Adam, all the way up to the time of Mount Sinai, God never once told man, I'm requiring this of you, but at Mount Sinai, He gave that law, or He gave that direction or prohibition or whatever the case might be. So there was another dispensation. Something had been dispensed. Something had been given out that hadn't been given out before. But God's moral nature has never changed. His methods change. Some people don't think his methods changed, and they think whatever he did under the law of Moses, he's always going to do. So all the rituals and ordinances and the details of the law of Moses, we still have to do them now. There's a segment of Christianity that is caught up in that right now, where they think we've got to go back to the law of Moses and all the things that were done under the law of Moses. That was a dispensation that had certain methods that has changed. That dispensation is a past dispensation. We are in a different dispensation where some of those things, in fact, the vast majority of those things, have been fulfilled by something spiritual under the New Covenant dispensation. And there are new things now under the New Covenant dispensation. Physical circumcision as a rite of passage for membership in the family of God has changed the spiritual circumcision. And I can go through a whole long list of other things that were physical observances or physical rituals under the Old Testament that have changed to spiritual elements under the New Testament. So thank God that we understand that because we'd be doing the wrong thing. Wouldn't do you any good to do the old physical ordinance if there's no power in that anymore, if the power now is in its fulfillment, but you're not willing to do its fulfillment because you're wanting to live in the old instead of moving into the new. But we know God a little better than that because we've watched how He does things dispensationally. We've listened to Him explain His methods. But I'm going to say this again. God's morality is not dispensational. It doesn't change from one dispensation to the next. If God feels that something is morally evil, it's morally evil. His morality would have to change for that to change. His methods might change, as I said a few minutes ago. But methods are not moral in and of themselves... God wanted you to go through a certain process to demonstrate something, that doesn't mean it's moral. The only morality in it is you're being obedient to God. When God told Naaman to go and dip in the Jordan River seven times, the process of dipping in the Jordan River wasn't moral. There's probably a lot of people that dipped in the Jordan River before. It didn't mean anything moral by doing that. But if God asks you to do it, you are being moral by doing what God's asked you to do. So people were being moral by keeping the law of Moses, but there were elements of the law of Moses that were not moral in terms of their eternal purpose. They just were methods. So God's morality has not changed. He's got certain ways that He looks at things, certain expectations He has. In order for us to understand those, we've got to know enough about God. In order for you to understand any subject, you've got to study that subject. You don't get to just make up your own definition. It's just like today, we are celebrating our mothers. In about a month, we will be celebrating our fathers that we have, at least in our nation and in other parts of the world, a celebration of motherhood and fatherhood in May and in June. And I think that's appropriate. There's nothing evil about celebrating mothers because it wasn't originated in the Bible. You know, I hear people once in a while say, if it's not a celebration or a commemoration or what you might call a holiday, I say that in quotes because that does come from a phrase holy day, but if it's not a holiday, if it's not a celebration or commemoration or calendar based observance that God instituted, then you better not celebrate it. There's nothing wrong with celebrating the 4th of July because our nation is celebrating its independence on that day. There's nothing wrong with celebrating Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving wasn't instituted by God in the Bible, but aren't you glad we can celebrate it? Because when it was instituted, it was instituted by people that love God and wanted to show their appreciation. Mother's Day and Father's Day weren't instituted by God in the Bible, but you might say they were because he did say to honor your father and your mother. Every day should be a Mother's Day and a Father's Day. Every day we should show our appreciation and love for them. God doesn't have to institute a day for us to celebrate it. God didn't institute my birthday as any major thing that I'm going to celebrate in two weeks. Well, I'm not going to celebrate it. Anytime you're turning another decade and when you hit the decades that start with 50, there's nothing to celebrate anymore. What in heaven's name? I'm not celebrating turning 50 and it'll be exactly two weeks. I'm not celebrating that at all. God certainly didn't institute my birthday. I'm just so important, you know, on the 23rd of May every year. Remember, that's his birthday. I'm not that important. God didn't institute my birthday. I'm so going to celebrate it or memorialize it or maybe put it on a tombstone one day or whatever else happens. But we can celebrate things without those things being evil to celebrate. Thank God we can celebrate things like our mothers and our fathers. I can't imagine God takes any displeasure in the fact that and most of the people, by the way, as I said with Thanksgiving, most of the people that have instituted these kind of celebrations were Christians. Not that God told them to do it. He may have, but he did isn't in the Bible. But it's that they had a love for the things that God has created. There's some things God created. Do you know our society did not create fathers? You better be glad about that. Our society can't define what they did not create. I'm going somewhere and I think you probably know where. Our society did not create mothers or motherhood. And it cannot define mothers or motherhood because our society, our culture, our world does not have the authority to define what fatherhood or motherhood is. The person who created those offices is the only one who has the authority to define those offices. God created fathers and mothers. Those offices are the creation of God. Now you take it a step further just because of the conditions of our present culture. You do know marriage did not exist until God created it. The one who created it is the only one who has the right to define it. No law and no lawgivers have the right to redefine something that they did not create or establish. They can't establish it. They have no power or authority over it at all. So trying to define fatherhood, motherhood, marriage, manhood, or womanhood are not things a society has any business touching. Those are things defined by the holy God of heaven that created us in His image And for a purpose. And I'm going to tell you, ladies, those of you that have been biological mothers, or those of you that have been spiritual mothers, or those of you that have been both, God created that office for a precious purpose of high honor. That is one of the highest offices in all of creation, to be a mother. Don't you let this present world denigrate or change it in some way that minimalizes the importance of the office of motherhood. Foolish statements get made about somebody thinking that being a parent is some kind of a terrible thing that would happen to them. You know how many precious people are mourning deep inside and in deep distress over the fact that they are not a parent yet, that so badly would like to have children? And we're in a society that throws them in the trash. We're in a society that if they can get rid of them before they're even capable of being thrown in the trash, many of them will. What kind of upside down world are we living in, saints, where one of the greatest gifts God has ever given, the gift of being able to be a mother, has been reversed to it being a curse that you want to make sure you don't have to have that responsibility. There's wonderful responsibility in having a child. It may not turn out wonderful. It depends on the child's choices as they grow older. I mean, it may not turn out wonderful in terms of the things you may have to experience or the mourning that may be created by some of their choices, but it's one of the most incredible blessings of all to be a parent. As I said, it can create some of the greatest heartaches, but it's still one of the greatest gifts of God. It's one of the very first gifts of God, one of the very first things He said to mankind. It's difficult to determine when He intended them to begin doing this, and that's what leads into a lot of theories about the events of the first few chapters of Genesis. In the end of that first chapter of Genesis in particular, he made it very clear their mandate was to fill the earth, to replenish it, to fill it up is what that Hebrew word means. There's something that's empty that needs to be filled up. They weren't going to fill it up by breeding animals. They were going to fill it up by having children and their children having children. The goal was to populate this earth. That was God's purpose from the beginning. Do you realize one of God's first purposes was for fatherhood and motherhood? One of the very first purposes of God was the production of children. So motherhood is a precious thing. Womanhood is something that should be honored, no matter how much it's been denigrated in our society. We ought to honor it. We ought to respect those who are godly women, who've been godly mothers, who've been great examples that we can look at and say, there is an example of a godly woman. There is an example of a godly mother. They may not be synonymous, though as I said earlier on, I think the vast majority of godly women have also been godly mothers, even if they've never been a biological mother, because a mother is someone who is capable of affecting others who look to her for counsel or an example. Sometimes you can be a mother without even knowing you're doing it. What do you think of that? Say, well, I'm not a mother, Brother Bayer. I've never had any children. There's no telling how many people you might have influenced by your example, your words, putting your arm around them, showing them love, that you might have been a mother to more people than you'll ever know. You may not have thought of yourself that way when you were doing what you were doing, but as you get older especially, that becomes more true, that you can be a mother to other people in a way that maybe you didn't plan it, you didn't say, you know what, I think I see myself as so-and-so's mother. Well, you might feel that way towards somebody, but a lot of times it just comes as more of a natural thing, where you feel a desire to help somebody or a desire to encourage them. They may have a mother, they may have a good mother. But nobody can have too many good mothers, people operating in that kind of capacity, or fathers for that matter. I'd be thrilled to have any men of God who are good examples of godly manhood to influence my son. Why would I not? I have to be the principal influencer of my son. That's my responsibility. I don't mean that in the way I'm going to push in front of you so he just looks at me. That's not what I mean. I mean, I have to be the one by right of the fact that God intended me to be His primary example as His Father as a masculine role. But I hope every man that can have an effect on Him that's positive has an effect on Him. I hope every man in this assembly who's a man of God influence my son. That he looks to you and sees examples of manhood. And I don't just mean manhood that you're tough. I hope he becomes tough because you're going to have to be tough to live in this world. You're going to have to be a little bit more than just soft and effeminate as a man to live in this world you got to have some toughness to you. you got to have some fiber to you, some thickness of skin, not towards God, don't get callous towards God, but towards this world. You're going to have to have a little bit of toughness to you, mentally and physically for that matter, to be able to exist in a world like we're living in right now. But I hope he sees manhood especially in a spiritual sense. I hope he sees that in every place he can see it, in every example he can find, in books that he reads and watching your lives that he sees that. I hope my son was old enough. I don't think he is just yet. At that age, it's hard to remember everything you hear. But I pray, Brother Lee, for my own sake, I pray you live to an age that nobody's seen yet in this present day. But even for my son's sake, I pray he was old enough to hear what you said Sunday night. And it registered to him that appeal you were making for prayer that God would keep you faithful. That was such a precious appeal. I pray to God my son heard it or it registered on his heart somehow. And he realizes that's what it is to be a man. That's what it is to be a man. That's an incredible expression of manhood. There isn't any greater man than Jesus, is there? You realize Jesus cried out for his father's help? There isn't any greater expression of manhood than Jesus, is there? I hope my son sees some of you men crying. I mean crying in the right way, not crying because you didn't get your way over something. I don't think you would do that. hope not. Crying because you're in a bad spirit. I mean crying because the Lord has touched you. Jesus set that example. He wept over Jerusalem and over certain things. In terms of my daughters, and I already know this is true, my son's only five years old, so for him to register those things in a way that it will carry into his adult life is still uncertain. But my daughters have had so many experiences with you, precious ladies. I doubt there's a lady in this assembly that if I were to ask my daughters, tell me something about how so-and-so has impacted your life, that they would not have a list, not just one thing. I was telling precious Sister Alda here just the other day, we saw her and Brother Stallard went over and spent the evening with him one of the days this last week and got to see Brother Stallard. If you can see Brother Stallard or if you can reach out to him, please do it. He'd love to have you visit with him or call him. Make sure you talk to Alda see if he's up to visitors, but I know he'd love to have you call him, if nothing else. But I told Sister Alda when I saw her some of the things that you had said to me, Danny. I'm not going to repeat them and embarrass both of you here, but some of the things that Danny had said to me about Sister Alda. She has said some of the highest praise about Sister Alda and how much Sister Alda means to her and the example she set for her and even her example in the band and how much she wants you to be sitting beside her up there, Sister Alda. So, Lord, let it be so. That isn't because of Sister Alda's choice. She's got things on her shoulders right now. But I'm praying that her shoulders can be strengthened. We can strengthen her arms and her back so she can bear the load. And God better yet lighten the load because I already know she can carry it. I've watched her carry some heavy loads. Mr. Alda is a mother in Zion. If there is an example of a precious woman of God, that is a mother in Zion. That is a precious prayer warrior and woman of God back there. We ought to call on God to touch her and bless her and strengthen her, strengthen her arms, strengthen her resolve. And though that is the real goal, is because we all want to be made stronger, Lord, lift the load too. Once you've done what's necessary to give her the strength she needs to endure, whatever load you give her, then Lord, will you lift this one so she has a little breathing room to be able to carry some things that I know she would love to carry? So we want to honor our precious ladies. Ladies, you're important to this assembly. Every demographic is important to our assembly for different reasons. Each demographic impacts the assembly in a different way. Each demographic impacts our assembly. They're important to our assembly. Just imagine if you take certain things out. Just start taking certain demographics out. Just today, here's a demographic. Well, you may not think about it, but it's the reason I'm standing up. I'm not always feeling like standing up. I always feel the need to do certain things. I always feel the Spirit. That's the precious thing about God, even when I don't really feel like doing something, because maybe I am hoping others will do it, not for my sake, but so they will be developing and growing and have room to exercise. I always feel the presence the anointing of God, which is an incredible blessing, even when there are times that I would rather not have to speak or not have to act in a service where I want to just let the brethren kind of manage things. When that's not possible or when something happens that is necessary for me to address things, which is usually the case, it's not today, but it's usually the case when there's visitors and things. You may not think that through, but when there's visitors that are coming because they have questions about the assembly or about, I don't mean bad questions, I mean good questions. They're coming and they're expecting certain things. They want to hear what you have to say about some things. So it puts me in a position where I almost have to say some things when I'm in that situation where I may not even want to have to speak that day. But I want our brethren to be active as they po- All of our brethren, sisters too, to be as active as they possibly can. One of the demographics we are missing today is, as you can see by looking behind me, is the brethren that sit on the platform. They are all out today. They're out due to some work-related issues they can't get out of, or health-related issues, or travel-related issues, and we almost never have everybody gone at one time. And it's one of the reasons our demographics matter, don't they? When we're missing certain things, we feel that hole. When a church doesn't have a certain group, there was a time in this church, in the early days of this church when we got here, and the early days of us being in this church, where we had almost nobody in terms of children or young people. We just had a few children that were able to come sometimes, and we had just precious sister Heather, Cindy. Cindy's behind me still, isn't she? We had precious sister Heather that was standing up for the entire youth group in this church for a little while. Aren't you glad God has done what He's done? Did you notice here a few weeks ago, we had this whole section packed with young ladies singing? What do you think of that? Look what the Lord has done. You know, we came to this precious assembly. Now it's been, what is it, 16 years ago in a couple months when we came to this assembly. If we would have had the youth group sing, there would have been one precious lady singing a solo. Now we call for the young people to sing and we didn't even have several of them. We were missing several. Was my daughter and Josiah. And yet we had this whole section of the platform packed with young ladies. Praise the God of heaven. Aren't you thankful for what the Lord has done, where he's brought us from? He's not done bringing us either. There's greater things ahead, greater things in the spiritual realm. Thank you, Lord. Those demographics are important when they're all able to be here. They add something to the activity of the church. And one of the demographics we're celebrating today, which we're obviously celebrating today, are our ladies, our mothers. As I told you in the beginning, I don't generally just discuss the precious value of our mothers without addressing our ladies in general because not everybody has been able to be a mother in a physical sense. We've got a wide variety of things that have affected our ladies in our assembly that some of them just tear my heart out just knowing what the conditions are that some of them have dealt with or are dealing with. We have got precious ladies that would love to have children that have not been able to have children yet. That is a heartbreaking, heart-rending condition. And on Mother's Day, wouldn't you think that'd be one of the highest things we ought to be praying for? Lord, will you open the wombs of those whose wombs can be opened? And Lord, if there's someone else who's never been able to have a child, that would have loved to have a child, will you add people to their lives that will be like children to them in terms of relationship that they can feel like? I have had an impact on the generation to come. We've got precious ladies in our assembly that have lost their children. How much more devastating can it be? That, in many ways, is worse than never being able to have any, to have had them and to have lost your child. That tears the heart out of me when I think about what you've suffered, losing a child. We've had people that, I mean, really lost one permanently, and I don't know about permanently. If they're in the hands of God, it's not permanent. If they were a child of God, it's not permanent, saints. David said even about his little baby. And you think about this, because sometimes we get questions that are very difficult, very theologically deep about the nature of whether or not babies will be in the resurrection in the world to come. What does it take for a baby to potentially have a resurrection? And of course, we would go naturally to the statement, and by the way, this is a great encouragement. It doesn't require even both parents. If one parent is holding on to God, that child is under the covering of that parent, when they were a little baby. I have a great confidence in that statement for little children that have been lost. Precious people of God that have lost their children. But if that child has grown up and come into relationship with the Lord themselves, they're not lost. But I want you to think about this situation I started saying about David. And I think he meant what it sounds like he meant. David had a child with Bathsheba, which was not in any way a correct thing. And God did take the life of that child. He could have taken David's life, but God had already made promises that because of his own moral nature would have prohibited him taking David's life because David still had things to do. And God had already made some promises. But you realize what David said about that child? This is a child that was probably an infant just out of the womb. This was not a child that'd grown up and got to know the Lord or that they had done anything to have some kind of special covering over that child. David said, he can't come to me. He's in the grave now. He's not going to come to me, but I can go to Him. Now, if you understand what the Hebrew is saying there, that is one of the most precious statements in the world. David was essentially saying, I can see Him again. And I hope and pray, that's what was meant by that, that because God is merciful, I may see this child again in the resurrection. There's certainly true of people that are children of God that are born under the covering of a godly parent.